Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pushkin. Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by musician Dev Hines. You may know him as Blood Orange. He's made four records under that moniker, along with two EPs, including a recent project titled Four Songs. Over the fall, Dev opened for Harry Styles during a month-long residency at Madison Square Garden. When Dev is not making records, he's creating scores for films and TV shows. Just in the past couple years, he served as the composer on movies like Passing and Master Gardener and TV programs like Rap Shit and In Treatment. This is all to say, Dev is a kind of polymath, moving from R&B to soul to electronica with ease. When we sat down for this conversation you're about to hear, Dev was in between projects at a little bit of a crossroads. Usually on the show, we talk to people that have just released something new and are in the throes of their promotional tour. This is something different. Instead, we discuss his upbringing in Essex, leaving the UK for the US in his early 20s, how he navigates making all kinds of music for all kinds of mediums, and so much more. I really hope you enjoy this very special conversation with the tremendously talented Dev Hines. Dev Hines. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. How are you feeling? Well, I simultaneously feel over-caffeinated and not caffeinated enough. What can we do to fix that? Give you water? Yes, that's what I was just about <laughs> to say. I need to just drink water and like, that's it. And being here, how does that feel? I feel incredible. I'm such a fan. <laughs> I'm such a big fan. I always get nervous when <laughs> people that listen come on the show. It gives mm. me a lot of anxiety. Like I have to rise to the occasion. I mean, you do. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Be no problem. There are so many places to begin. I think, why don't we start with this most recent EP of yours? It's called Four Songs. And around records, you often say, ultimately, albums of mine are just time capsules of my life. It's like a shutter clicking on this exact moment. I said that? Yeah. Oh my God, that's pretty good. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of quotes in here. You know the show. Oh God, I used to be a lot more literate back in my day. Come on, don't knock yourself down already. We just started. Okay, yeah, no, I'll, I'll ease into that. <laughs> yeah, wait till the 30 minute mark. <laughs> so what did life look like inside that time capsule? In complete honesty, I agreed to do these shows opening up for Harry Styles. Who's that? <laughs> He's in that one movie, right? He's in that one movie. So I agreed to play shows with this actor to help him out. You're so generous. And people don't say that enough about you. They don't. You know, we had to bring people into MSG somehow. So I signed up. Got it. And these 15 shows in October, in my mind beforehand, I was like, I don't need to put music out. No one really cares. It's fine. I feel like there used to be a world where if you're going to play shows, you put music out. I think there's still truth in that, but it's not as true now right. with the ways that you can actually just be in people's minds. As it got closer, I started thinking, well, I have odd songs. I mean, I have a lot of songs, but there was a couple songs I thought. Four songs. 
well, it started off with one song. <laughs> and then my mind was like, well, maybe it has to be two because then there's a bit of context. And obviously it grew to four. Mm-hmm. And I've never done an EP before. I've always been very much into albums as these things that sum up like a couple years of my life mm-hmm. in a way. And this, it wasn't quite that. I haven't finished an album yet. I almost don't even know what the album I can see where it's going, but I couldn't really say what it is. So this EP is kind of an ellipsis then. It is. And I and I really didn't and it's funny because there were a lot of conversations with label and PR and people where they kept asking me, like, can you give a sentence to what this is? <laughs> and I was like, it's four songs. Like, you know, I I was very literal and I I was kind of like, I don't really, there is no other message to this (laughs) because it's quite literally just four songs. I could speak about each song individually, Mm -hmm. but they're not being released individually. In an interview you did with the great Beverly Glenn Copeland, you said, since I started making music, it has essentially been by myself in my bedroom, thinking about the place I want to be and what that place sounds like to me. So when we look at these four songs, what was that first sound that came to you? It was Essex, where I grew up. And that's what's on the cover. The artwork for it is a picture of um, Wanstead Flats in Essex. And so the thread of all those songs is that place, which is also what I think the album is going to lead to. But the picture's still blurry. I see that. The cover is literally blurry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I'm I'm quite a literal person. Well, we're going to dive into to Essex in a second. Before we do that, why don't we play a little bit from the song Wish off the EP Four Songs. What did you think hearing that? Okay, well, I should say, first of all, I never put something out that I'm not like completely happy with. So everything I put out has hit a place where I'm- Happy enough. It works. But what happens is there's almost like three different categories within letting it go. (laughs) And there's a category where it's like, this serves the purpose or like this hits the place I wanted to hit. Mm. And in category two, it would be, this was as far as I could take it. <laughs> like, you know, what I mean? like I like it and I'm happy with it. It's as far as it could have gone. Mm-hmm. And there's a third place, which happens every now and then, where I feel like I've hit the thing, like a marker point in my brain from my childhood, which essentially is the reason I do anything. And every now and then I feel like I hit that place. I, I I almost, I call them like, and this is literal and not literal, but I call them like posters on the wall, like the posters that were on my childhood wall. Every now and then I feel like I hit it. And this song fell into which of those three? Posters on the wall. And it's really crazy because I know way before it's finished, instantly that this scratches that itch for me. And then I obsessed over it and finished it spent a month just nonstop working on it and then finished it. It's funny because growing up in Essex, the literal posters on your wall included the Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. Oof. Slipknot and David Beckham. Absolutely. All of, <laughs> all of which have probably never been grouped together until now. <laughs> but that's you at 11 or 12 years old, right? Yeah. And 36. <laughs> <laughs> So what in this song served as a kind of marker for your preteen self? I guess sonically, it, it's quite reminiscent of a lot of, I guess, dreamy things I listened to back then. And, and actually, in my mind, it is very Smashing Pumpkins-y. And I actually think a lot of my melodies are super Smashing Pumpkins-y, and it's never quite noticed. Something in it 
just hit a place for me. That goes back to your childhood. That goes back to my childhood. And, and I guess a, a fun part, if there is one, <laughs> of releasing music, the fun part is if that can translate. If there's one person out there that it also hits in some way. I want to try to understand the kind of kid you were back then in Essex. Mm. Your introduction to music comes in 1991 at the age of six when you would endlessly follow your older sister to piano lessons. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a vivid memory of watching your sister being taught by Mrs. Chalice? Yeah, I have very vivid memories of it. So it's this like small, compact, beige from lack of... Uh, being cleaned room in Essex, in Dagnum. I'm throwing shade at this lady. <laughs> I know I shouldn't have. R.I.P. Mrs. Chalice. But um, <laughs> she sits in the corner. The piano is tucked in the corner. It's a brown upright piano. <laughs> and she's sitting there. And there would be other students sitting in this room, but not too many, maybe like four or five at one time. And she'll call someone up to the piano. Louise, my sister, or me. You sit there. It was usually a lot of Beethoven. And you'll play through it, and if you got a wrong note, she would take her pen, and on the ivory keys, just... <laughs> and she would tap the keys. <laughs> and my memory is just her, just getting a wrong note, her saying no, and then... She tapped more than she spoke. <laughs> it was kind of, it was incredible. And it was from those taps that you thought, yeah, I think I should do music. <laughs> And just like that. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's weird, you know, because my sister then um, stopped. She didn't carry on. She stopped after like a couple of years or so. I carried on, but then at nine, added cello mm -hmm. and started playing cello in, at my school and in the school orchestra. Well, so at your school, the teachers come in, they ask every student, what instrument do you want to play? Yes. Most kids chose the drum, yeah. guitar. <laughs> yes. You chose the cello. I chose the cello. Why? The full reason is because I didn't want to choose something everyone else chose. That was really it, you know, and I, I but then I fell in love with it mm. and I really loved it. And then I would see things on TV, like BBC things, cello being played and, and I loved it. When did you know that you loved it? Actually, I hadn't thought about this. I knew I loved it when they asked me to switch to double bass because I was taller and no one was playing double bass in the orchestra and they wanted me to switch. And how old were you then? That would have been 12 and I really didn't want to switch. <laughs> and that's how you knew. And I think that's how I knew. When you first started out, did you sense that you had some kind of aptitude for it? No. Music was quite a secret, not to my family, of course, but in regards to people I knew and people that knew me, it wasn't really a thing that people Why really was that? Knew. Nothing intentional, but I think it was almost so natural to me that it didn't seem like a thing that was possible to do beyond just doing it at home mm. or in a lesson or in orchestra. I was playing football a lot and that was something that was, I was putting a lot of work into. And, and that felt like... Uh, a thing because I'm working on it, if this makes sense. It does, yeah. You know, around that age, at least in that early, early teens. It's at that age that you're practicing the cello inside your bedroom, which you've often said is a process largely informed by escapism. You said music was always the path to escape where I was as a child and even now. What did you want to escape from as you entered high school? Um... Other kids, really. I mean, I was quite heavily bullied in high school. And, and in my school, the only thing that kind of saved me was that I was very good at football. What did that bullying look like? Name calling, spitting, getting jumped, getting beaten up. In school, and then it stopped in school, out of school. Because Essex is, a, at least that part, is, is a crazy place. I have a lot of like love for it now in this like somewhat rose-tinted way, you, you know, as you get older. But it was quite hellish. 
What would your parents say when you came home and were marked up? My mom, I remember after one really bad moment, my mom put me in karate lessons, <laughs> which I, oh God, I hated. I hated it so much. I had the same thing happen to me. Yeah? Wow. I did one lesson. Oh my God. And I thought, you know what? I'd rather get beat up. Honestly, yeah, same. <laughs> it was so awful. I've buried it so deep in the recesses <laughs> of my mind. Um, you said in the past, I think people forget that I'm from Essex and had to fight mentally and physically to keep living. Being beaten up and going to hospitals multiple times, being spat on the bus every day. I hated every living moment. Very, very true. I think people do um, kind of forget. I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I don't know if it's, I can't place what it's more to do with if it's just like an American lack of understanding of England or because I don't flaunt it creatively in a way. I mean, if you like read the lyrics, you can kind of see it, but it's not the story, <laughs> you know? Well, for those who do pay attention to the lyrics, why don't we play a bit from Dagenham Dream off your record Negro Swan from 2018? Where did that take you back to? A couple places, actually. One, because weirdly, the entirety of that song was recorded in a room in the Line Hotel in K-Town. I know that hotel. <laughs> yeah. It makes it sound more nefarious the way I said it. Yeah. I, do, I know that hotel. Yeah, you know that hotel. Yeah, and so the first thing just now was because I'm in LA right now I was brought back to the line I kind of was I, and I remember recording it in the hotel like the entire song which is quite rare for me because I tend to record in such a scatterbox way and it's quite rare a whole song is made in like one place for me and it was made in like four or five days in this room and yet it is deeply about that period in childhood where you were in fights. Yeah. I mean, which maybe this um, connects as to why it was a song that was completed in one place, because it's also maybe one of a handful songs I've written about a thing that, you know, it's like quite specifically mm. about something. What was the thing? It's about one particular moment when I got jumped. As a kid. As a kid. And, and especially brutal one? Yeah, a pretty rough one of like multiple people pounding and kicking and all that kind of stuff. And after that, my hair wasn't too crazy, but it was a little long maybe. And and I cut my hair off. You know, this is like the 90s. So <laughs> like cut like lines in my eyebrow. And I was pretty like bruised and beaten up. And I had this teacher who noticed because she was like one of the like young teachers you know i remember she would go to like glastonbury and stuff <laughs> she was cool and i have this memory where she pulled me aside after a lesson and she kind of like spoke to me she sent me down and spoke to me like it's quite hazy so I, I can't really remember the tone of it but i remember that she cried and it really stuck with me why do you think she cried i think because she saw you know i would be quite expressive before and then I was like beaten into trying to like, not even like fit in, but almost like not stand out. Not be the person that you wanted to be. Yeah. And so this, this song is essentially about that. When you turn 17 and discover the 1980s Harlem ballroom and Vogue scenes in Paris at Burning, did that provide a kind of life force for you? Definitely. It absolutely did. I mean, I think that is also an extension of how much literature and books was very helpful for me. And discovering 
history and not feeling alone within that. I remember very clearly reading Please Kill Me and you know, thinking like, what is this place? And now I live there. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> like, like that, there's a direct line. Why don't you explain that for context for people? Yeah. Okay. So Please Kill Me is uh, a book that is the history of New York, I guess you could say punk scene, Danny Fields, the Ramones, 70s, Stooges moving to New York and Blondie, that whole life and scene. So you're 17, 18 yeah. in England reading about this place that feels like a galaxy away. Yeah. But falling in love with it from afar. Yeah. And, you know, and I was already in love with it as most English people are from film. Mm -hmm. From a very young age, you see these images, whether it's Ghostbusters or Home Alone 2. (laughs) There's an image of New York that exists. You know, the staples. Yeah. Ghostbusters (laughs) and Home Alone 2. Yeah. That's New York. Well, it's like... I think about Home Alone 2 when I'm in Central Park still. Really? I think about the pilot of Gossip Girl. I think about the wedding in Gossip Girl. <laughs> now you've hit you've hit a spot here because I've seen every episode of Gossip Girl. Let's go. And I also do think about Gossip Girl in New York. I just didn't think you would say that. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's what you're thinking about. That is what I'm thinking about. When you when you finish high school and you start performing in that punk band... Test Icicles. Test Icicles. Did you know that you wanted to move to New York? I didn't know. Basically, it was a group of friends of ours. We'd form bands for a week, break them up, and we did it all the time when we were younger. This is you at 19, 20? Yeah, maybe even 18. And yeah, and so one of his bands, which had my friend Sam in it, was called... <laughs> oh my god we were teenagers it was called balls i wasn't in that band they didn't include you in that i wasn't in balls yeah do you still <laughs> kind of feel like the pain of that well no to not but, be included in such what, a because what happened was the band the unicorns if you remember them mm-hmm. were playing a show in nottingham at this club in nottingham and the guy that ran the club night contacted ferry saying can balls support the unicorns you pay for your train ride there and you get to see the unicorns with real fans of them and blah blah blah. ferry had to go back to indonesia to renew his visa for london and so he said to the promoter bulls can't play but my friend's band test icicles can play band didn't exist he just made it up on the spot (laughs) and so he says to us hey, if you write some songs and go to Nottingham and you play as this band Test Icicles, you get to see the unicorns and hang out. And that's what happened. Incredible. <laughs> so once Test Icicles breaks up, you turn 21 years old, the year is 2007, you move to New York City where you live on a friend of a friend's couch. Yes. <laughs> in Long Island City, to be specific. Correct, yes. Yes. That move across the pond, were you anxious about it? It's really crazy because like, I, I, especially recently, I think about that moment a lot because I don't, it's quite a bold move because I really didn't have anything or know anyone. And the only reason I really did it is because I still had a visa from Test Icicles because we were meant to do an American tour and then we canceled it. And so I had the visa and I didn't have a place in London at mm. the time. And I just thought, oh, I guess I could go to New York. I have this visa still. And I just did it. And a friend of mine who I'm still very close with, a friend named Fred McPherson, kind of like went on holiday around the same time. And so he was there and I kind of hung out with him. But then he, you know, went back to London. You mentioned Fred McPherson. He said, when you moved, this is a quote from him. Dev spoke in an American accent since before he moved to America. (laughs) Then he got to New York and switched it to English. (laughs) That's incredible. Is that true? I wouldn't say it's true, but who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Feels like accents is something you could confirm or deny. I'm almost certain that's not true. (laughs) 
The only reason I, I'm certain that's not true is because I quite recently watched Test Icicle's interviews and my accent was thicker, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Why would he? This, he gave this quote to the New York Times. He's a, well, Fred McPherson, he's a, I think maybe what he's alluding to isn't necessarily to do with accent and could be more to do with maybe how I carried myself. How do you mean? What's what or what was the difference rather? I don't know. I I mean I'm 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 theorizing this in real time. This this, <laughs> this is the whole podcast. We could also call him too. But um I, Oh my god. <laughs> that sounds Actually, can we? Yeah, we could totally call him. Just call him. I love this. We've never called someone in a podcast before. I'm so glad I could I could be the person. Okay. All right. I'm going to give him a bell. We'll see if he answers. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I should introduce you to um to Sam who's here. Hello. Hi Sam, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. So Fred, Fred, this is a moment right now where we're, we're talking about the moment Dev moved to America. There's a quote that you gave the New York Times magazine in which you said before Dev moved to America, they were all speaking in American accents. Dev spoke in American accent since before he moved to America, and then he got to New York and switched it. And uh, we were trying to figure out if that is true or not, because Dev, Dev does not agree with what you said. That is a 100% fact. <laughs> <laughs> I knew Dev. You sure? Maybe it was like some mangled thing because Sam had that Aussie accent. You spoke in your like stage voice. Right. Like, yo, yeah. 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 Oh, okay. You know what? You know what? There is truth to this. There is truth to this. I I see what you're saying. No, there is truth to this. No. I, I think it was like, it's more um, more word choice, grammar. Yeah, yeah. I thought Dev was American and then he moved to New York and he suddenly started speaking the same accent. Also, how funny that New York Times picked that as one of the quotes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. She was with you for so long. <laughs> yeah, I was on it. I think Dev has always um, embodied his outsider status and I... I would imagine he'd never felt, well, I'm projecting here, but he'd probably never been more proud of his Englishness until day one in New York. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's spot on. That's perfect. Wow. Uh, you, you killed it. You were, you know. Fred, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, unbelievable. Yeah, and thank you. I've been doing the show for seven years. We've never called someone in the middle of it, <laughs> but it's so perfect. You probably never will again. Have a good one. Cheers, Sam. Thank, thank you very much. Thank Cheers, you. Right. See you later. Take care, man. Bye. Bye. I love that. So he said, you were never more proud of your Englishness than when you moved to New York. Yeah. And so why don't we play a song that captures that move to America and, of course, pays homage to the 1980s New York that you fell in love with. Yeah. This is Sutphin Boulevard. Off the record, Coastal Grooves. I learned a lot in this song. What did you learn? It was a very, 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 if not maybe the second Blood Orange song I maybe ever wrote that was Blood Orange, quote unquote. But um, guitar wise, it was the first time I kind of played around with like that kind of plucky sound. First time I used that synth texture, which I still use. You know, it's there was just a lot of like, even vocally, how much vocals were in the song with it being quite sparse 
maybe one of the first times I did something like that. It just really, things clicked and unlocked musically a, a lot of things mm. for me. In the liner notes for that first record, the only person that it's dedicated to is Octavia St. Laurent. For those listening who may not be familiar, who was she and who was she to you? So Octavia was a woman in New York who was in Paris's Burning and was from the St. Laurent family house and somewhat of a star in that film who was dreaming and but had all this like self-confidence. For me in those early days living in New York, that film was quite a, a comfort for me. Why was that? I think it was a mixture of the fact that I was also in New York. There was that part to it. But also I felt like I saw a place that was kind of welcoming and, and, and uplifting and just the idea of uh, being able to create your own, uh, not goals, but like, um, let me work out how to say this. I have some words. Okay, hit me. You said once, Blood Orange wouldn't exist if it wasn't for that period of New York and the voices that spoke up in that era. And to a certain extent, the person I am now wouldn't really exist if I hadn't started listening to people like Octavia St. Laurent and Marlon Riggs. Not only did I find strength in what they were doing and their words and their energy, but I fell in love with the actual aesthetic of it all too. This frozen thing that maybe doesn't fully exist anymore felt like the home where I needed to be. Well, those are words. <laughs> I really have gotten dumber. Um, What's happened? <laughs> like, can't speak anymore. That's not true. <laughs> that really is it. Because it's the combination, you know, it's a combination of the confidence and their voices and how loud their voices were and what they were saying. And the extra sweetness of it all is that I also loved things they created. Like just artistically and aesthetically, I also love that. And the combination of all of that cumulatively is and was very inspiring. Putting a pause on the conversation, we'll be right back with Dev Hines. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So by the time that first record comes out, you had been in New York for about three, four years. Yeah. Did you start to see it as your home? Not yet. It still felt like a place that I was touching and exploring and eyes wide. The second Blood Orange album is really the album where it's like, this is my home. So that comes in 2013. Yeah. It's called Cupid Deluxe. There's a song on there called Chamake that I wanted to sit with for a moment. Tell the backstory of what this song is and then where it takes you as you film the music video. So the song Chamake, which kind of unlocked a lot of things also. Again, you're picking good choices. You say that like you're surprised. <laughs> I know, I've listened to the show. I know what's going to happen. So yeah, Chamake was really cool. And it unlocked a lot of things for me because it was the first time where I was starting to have this idea that I could 
have anyone on any song I wanted, which I know sounds like right now in this world, an idea that is easy to get to. But I really feel in like 2012 when I was working on it, it felt pretty kind of out there, like to the fact that it was like a solo project, but then you could have other people sing and have someone sing lead, which I, I now do a lot, where I'm songs I'm not even singing on it, or have people come in and play instruments. And so anyway, I was friends with Caroline Polacek, and that was a song where I asked her to sing on it because I just loved her voice. And she did what she does and is still doing on songs, which is absolutely fucking obliterating them. And it was so good, and it was so cool, and that feeling was so incredible because it's that's the first time I felt that feeling of making music, bringing someone into the room and they hear it completely differently. And then they do what they feel the song needs. And that song then transforms for me. And it was the first time I felt that feeling. And I've been doing it ever since now. Well, <laughs> why don't we take a listen? Yeah. <laughs> this is Chamake off the record Cupid Deluxe from Blood Orange. I've heard you say before that once you released that second record, you felt in yourself a kind of acceptance of this musical path that you were going down. Like, it wasn't until that record that you said to yourself, okay, I think I am doing this music thing. Yeah. Which is kind of <laughs> incomprehensible, <laughs> given all the music we've played before this moment. Right, 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 right. What shifted inside of you? I kind of found a confidence because you know like up until that point i was doing what i wanted but i never really felt like i was doing what i wanted i never really felt like i was doing 100 percent just to my own uh what i see as cool in my eyes and and that happening at the same time as cuba deluxe which was fully just my thoughts and tastes and friends you know first time as I mentioned with Caroline earlier, it's the first time where I was like, I'm just gonna ask my friends to be on this and do whatever they want on it. And at the end of that, coming out with something that I really love, I was like, this is, I've worked it out. So you're riding high with this newfound confidence. <laughs> well, riding mid, but yeah. You're riding mid <laughs> with this middling confidence. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> You've released this record <laughs> to great success. I'd say the reviews were pretty positive. People seem to like it. I still haven't read them. With all that, I want to go to the end of this year. Yeah. Which is the night of December 16th of 2013. What happens? That, I believe, is the night my apartment burnt down in the East Village. How does that night replay in your head now? It's a very surreal night because I was like not at home, thankfully. You were at a tribute for Lou Reed? Yeah, which is weird, you know, because <laughs> maybe there's a world where now that sounds like it could be normal, but even now I don't think that's normal. And in 2013, that was definitely not fucking normal. Like, like that, I had no, I had no connection to Lou Reed. Mm -hmm. You know, it was very happenstance how I even ended up there. And so, yeah, I was at that. My phone was off. I step outside. You know, I have these texts kind of building on my phone from uh, my friend Keith. You know, someone who was seeing, I think, lived on my my block on 11th Street, and he was like, "Oh, you know, first text something like." something's happening, you know, are you around? And the next text is like, wow, I think it's on the block. And then it's like, I don't know where you are, but you should head back. I call him and then he's like, yeah, I, I, I can hear it in his voice. There's something not good. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't quite express it. 
which I understand. And I get back downtown and it's a very, uh, <laughs> of course, it's a very surreal thing to have your apartment burned down. By the time you got there, had the fire stopped? It stopped and the whole thing was gone. Without seeing it, you don't know how bad stuff is. And I hadn't seen it at that point and it wouldn't let me in. I should add, I, I had a little puppy at that time that was at home that died in fire. And then the next day I actually was able to go inside and do some pretty gnarly things. But um, it was, yeah, it was very, it's very surreal. And then honestly, I remember the day after, I remember that night, I remember the day after and the next two weeks, I have no idea. Because five days later, you check into a hospital. Yeah. From exhaustion. Yeah. And you have no memory of that. I really don't remember it. It's wild because I, I, I kind of, yeah, I don't. I can remember like a month or two after, and I can remember immediately after, and it's hazy hmm. after that, in that intermittent period. One thing you do, or at least it's been reported that you did, the day after you wake up in the hospital, you decide to book a show down at the Cameo Gallery in Brooklyn. Well. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but you said, and I quote, I just wanted a distraction from the grieving process. Wow. I mean, I guess that makes sense. I've forgotten that. That might be the only show in my life I've forgotten I've played. Really? Yeah. It was tough. It, it definitely was tough. And I was lucky to have some really, really great friends. I remember my friend Adam performs under the moniker Kindness. I remember Adam the day after very instantly buying me like, basic things like socks, underwear, like just, you know, just things that you wouldn't even think about. I wasn't thinking about it. You know, um, I remember they had it ready. I also remember that I was, <laughs> it's quite a funny thing, but I was halfway through reading uh, The Marriage Plot and I had left it at home that night. And so I remember going to the Strand to rebuy it. But the version I'd bought had a different cover and I couldn't do it. I like physically couldn't. I didn't finish that book for like another like two years. Like I couldn't. I think in hindsight, there's probably a lot more at play <laughs> than just What do you think was cover. at play? I, I think it was this sense of, um, I think I was trying to keep going, you know, just like, yeah, I just pick up on chapter seven, whatever. Mm -hmm. It was such a reminder that no, something has happened here. Like there, there's a real thing that, that has actually happened. There was a physical, tangible reminder. Yeah. In the form of a different book jacket. Yes. The smallest of detail to snap you back yeah. into that past. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I couldn't, um, it took me a long time to be able to um, buy things. Like absolutely anything. And, and it was such a surreal uh, feeling like being in a store and I mean, even, yeah, books and God knows what else. I, I remember, I just remember there was like a year or so, maybe even longer, honestly, of holding things in stores and then before the checkout moment, putting it all back and then leaving. I feel like I did that for like two years. Yeah. It was a very strange, very weird, crazy thing. And I can't even believe I, stayed in New York because I feel like some I feel like some people would have probably dipped but um I feel like the city's actively trying to spit people out and so I just kind of stuck around it does seem like in the aftermath of that the way you kept going the way you kept surviving was by making music yeah and almost exactly two years later from the day that your apartment burned down you have a show at the Harlem Apollo. And I want to go to the show because it was the first time, I believe, you were on a bigger stage playing solo and in the audience, your sister sat. The same sister you followed to piano lessons as a yes. kid. Yes. The same sister that showed you Nirvana and, and Prince yeah. and Madonna. And in the audience, watching you perform on this big stage, she filmed a video of you and send it to your mother. What did that moment mean to you and, and your family? I mean, it was really, 
it was crazy. I mean, that that Apollo show was like a real shift, personally. Well, first of all, it meant a lot just because when you do things not where you're from, it's always quite a crazy thing. You know, it's always this sense of, at least for me, I always feel this. I'm always like, I can't believe this. I even felt this like a month ago, literally playing Blood Orange shows. I still felt this is crazy that people in New York are here. And Apollo was fully that. And it was a, yeah, it was a really crazy feeling. And, and I know I, for my mother too, to see that it was, I think it showed something. Showed you making it. I guess so. I'm hesitant to use that word, but that term, but um, essentially I'm doing something. Well, what you were doing, I believe, <laughs> was playing the cello on stage. Yes, I was playing cello on stage. <laughs> I'm wondering, was that song Delancey? It was. Damn, that isn't even released. <laughs> Why don't we uh, take a listen oh! <laughs> to Delancey off SoundCloud? Wow, hot. so cool i love that song and it also really just now listening to that was crazy because it kind of took me back an earliest period when i look back at i think i was like a work monster <laughs> i was just every second making music i still have bits and pieces of music i you know i'm pulling from and playing around with from that period where it was just day in day out, nighttime, overnight, morning, coffee, back in the room, people coming in, people coming out. I, I was just, and I don't really even know, I don't know, but- that Feels period, like a different person. It truly does. And it's not like, cause later I would work a lot, but it was never like that period. I was like demented, I don't know. Can you say demented? <laughs> you can say demented. Okay, cool. <laughs> Do you miss that period? No, I don't. I don't miss it actually. I'm, I'm, I'm quite. Yeah, I'm quite okay with uh, kind of looking at different kind of periods in the past. But I, mm -hmm. I think it was. I think it was cooler. I think it was a cool period for me. I think it, it made sense for me at that moment in time. It's funny you're talking about that version of yourself, almost as if you're like now retired. <laughs> I know, I was, I was hesitant to say that because I definitely work a lot now. It's a little different and I'm aware it's different. And even, okay, so this is why it feels different because even with the Negro Swan album, I was working a lot, but there was a point. There was a focus point for that album, which was I knew what I wanted to do. Whereas that period felt like <laughs> just, there was no focus point. I was just like, doing whatever all the time, making songs, and I didn't have an end. But or almost every period after that, I've somewhat always had an, a place I wanted to get to. Mm. Well, we started this conversation talking about the ways in which you make music. So it feels like we ought to end on music itself. You've always used this art form as a way to escape from the conditions that you're in. And I'm thinking back on that kid that loved to run around in Epping Forest. <laughs> the teenager that dreamed of being a skater in the punk rock scene of 90s LA. The young adult 
that tried to recapture the halcyon days of 80s Harlem Ballroom. And I'm wondering, is music still the best way to create that fixed place inside yourself, that, that place where you can really just be you? Yeah, absolutely. It's like still absolutely what I'm doing, just making music that takes me to a different place. It's my only form of expression. I mean, there are other things I do and I do a lot of stuff, but I've always said that music is the route that's allowed me to do the other stuff. I, I never like want to chop that route off, you know, like directing videos, it's because of music, like making artwork, graphic design, it's because it's the artwork for the music I've made or writing words, it's the words for the music I've made, you know? So I, I really, I'm, I think I've, and still have quite a complicated relationship with it, which I'm aware, I'm aware that I have this like weird thing, but at the same time, I do still try and want to honor it and respect it and kind of never like chop it off. A decade ago, you said the buzz is going to die. Maybe when people forget about me, I can sneak around and do all the things that I want to do. Oh, that must have been a dark day. <laughs> I still talk like that, but <laughs> I try and hide well, it more. Well, clearly the buzz has died because you only performed a mere 15 nights at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> uh, the buzz died last night, I'm not going to lie. I mean, recently. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I, I had a conversation that left me thinking, why on earth? would I want to make a Blood Orange album? And I had those thoughts a couple years ago, really intensely. And if you had run into me and asked me if there was gonna be one, I, I'm almost certain I would have said no. I got past that period because I realized what I was doing was taking every negative thought of myself that I have and almost like as if it was a separate person being like, oh, that's like when I do blood orange stuff, like that's what that is. Like that mm. thing about myself that I hate or this like embarrassing thing or this whatever, that's that, that's not me. You know, like I, I felt, I think I was doing that subconsciously. I kind of got past that <laughs> eventually. But I recently in conversations discussing the good old music business, had that feeling where I was like, well, why on earth would I would I make another album? I'm self-aware enough at this point to know that I will. You know, it's not like me being, you know, like I, I know myself. Mm -hmm. But I did fall into that hole. Like I, I I'm I'm quite lucky. I, I'm I'm lucky to have been making music for as long as I've been making it, because I think that is quite a rarity. And I feel I do I worked hard, but at the same time, that doesn't always pay off. So I, I feel quite blessed that I can even be in this room now talking about music I've made when I was like 18. It's crazy, you know? But then I also struggle because it is my, Blood Orange specifically, is my emotional outlet. So it, it gets very tough for me sometimes to be able to like do it as a thing. It's funny because in the beginning of this talk, we described four songs as a kind of ellipsis. And when we described the songs as that, what I didn't know is that you seem to be in a kind of ellipsis. Yeah, I, I told you I'm a very literal person. It's what it is, you know? So then the very literal question I have to ask is, <laughs> What does your heart want to do? Well, you know, this is, that is the tricky thing. Like, it's tough because I, my only way of letting things out is music. That is how I naturally can like excavate and process anything. I think a reason why I've done a lot more classical things was this feeling and like scoring too i think it's because it's very 
not musically simple, but the thing is simple. Here's money to write music on paper and give this music on paper to these performers and these performers perform them. Paper without words. Yes, you know. Or lyrics. Yeah. There's something very pure to me still within that. And also it takes me back to my childhood with cello and piano and that is there. And I love it and I love doing it. But I think there was a part of me that was gravitating there more and more recently because of that simplicity. And so I do love, and I'm always making music that I think is blood orange music. I'm always doing it. And I do think I will make an album, but I'm definitely in this period where I'm kind of like fine China <laughs> right now. <laughs> like I forgot about it. Like I really feel like I've never been more sensitive in my life in regards to creating. And I developed quite a thick skin, I, I felt, through the years. I don't know what has changed and what's shifted. Maybe there's only so many layers of skin you can create before it eventually just like evaporates. But I, I do feel things that weren't shutting me down before do now. So where does that leave us? <laughs> I think... The second dot of an ellipsis. The second dot. <laughs> the one concrete thing we can say that's next for you musically is this show with uh, a symphony in March. Yes, the London Symphony Orchestra going to perform two different symphonies I've written over the last couple of years. And I'll do some piano pieces with my friend Adam Tendler. Well, if we began with music, we should end with perhaps a track, something you've scored that you really like. Oh, true. To hear a little bit of what you're going to do next, what you've done recently. Why don't we end on a song that you made for the film Passing, directed by Rebecca Hall. future forever uncertain yours mine just about anyone listening but wherever you land on the other side of that ellipsis i do know that i'll be there thank you i appreciate that deb hines it has been an honor oh honor's all mine really until next time That's our show. Special thanks this week to Malcolm Hill, Jenna Pell, and the team at the Oriole Company, Sony Music, and Domino Recording, our caller, Fred McPherson, and of course, Dev Hines. You can listen to his latest EP, Four Songs, wherever you get your music. To hear more of his work, we've included links in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd recommend my conversations with David Byrne, Alana Hyam, Sid, Run the Jewels, Brittany Howard, Lord, Ben Staples, Questlove, and Joey Badass. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. If you want to support Talk Easy in other ways, the best thing you can do is rate and review the program on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. Just giving us those five stars really goes a long way. It's how new listeners find the show. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs by Maria Alvarez. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Wednesday for a bonus talk with actor, writer, director, Lake Bell. Until then, stay safe and so long.